Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we're really excited to be joined by Dr. Lucia Pradella, who's a senior lecturer in international political economy at King's College London. Welcome to the show, Lucia. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. Um, We're going to be talking about imperialism and unfree labor. And I guess the way to begin is to talk about my local grocery store here in Brooklyn, where we have a huge shelf of um, fairly expensive canned Italian tomatoes from, you know, Muti and all these other really great brands. And I think here we really romanticize Italian agriculture. We sort of picture golden fields of wheat in, in the hills of Tuscany and a sea of ripe tomatoes. But we, we don't think much about who, who, who picks those tomatoes and who harvests the wheat. So perhaps we could start there. Who are the people who are engaged in what you call unfree labor in Italy? Well, I think that um, the thing to highlight is that, um, especially since um, the early 80s, um, immigrant workers in Italy have played an increasingly important role in uh, Italian agriculture. And so there are several surveys today that uh, analyze the conditions of uh, workers in the agricultural sector And what they have highlighted is that um, quite a lot of people, uh, between 400,000, 430,000 people uh, who work in agriculture are employed irregularly. And about 100,000 of these workers risk being employed through a gang master or in conditions of severe exploitation. Well, maybe you could talk about that more. What is the gang master system? The gang master is a system of labor intermediation. So the gang master very often is uh, the person who basically find a job for uh, immigrant workers who intermediate uh, with the employer. But uh, for this reason also plays or has quite a lot of power on the lives of, uh, of those workers. And so in the past, um, the gang master system didn't play such a big role. But uh, in recent years, especially after the 80s, has uh, returned to being the main system of recruitment and management in uh, agriculture. And what the gang masters do, they're called caporali in uh, Italian. So they select the workers on behalf of agricultural employers. Uh, they go to labor markets, so who are really markets of uh, workers in town squares, bars, roundabouts, reception centers, and so on. And uh, they find workers and they mobilize these workers according to the demands of the production cycle in different zones. And very often, gang masters are immigrants themselves, and uh, they also perform a series of uh, necessary uh, tasks. Like, for example, they arrange transport, accommodation in the absence of uh, public services. And minority of gang masters uh, also is in touch and colludes with uh, criminal organizations. And in some cases, the control over the workers is achieved with violent means, like, for example, 
uh, they can seizure the documents of the workers, they, uh, they don't pay their wages or they kind of exercise control because the employers give them the wages and they are the intermediators. And sometimes gang masters can be responsible for sexual abuse and also murder of, of the workers. You use the term super exploitation when talking about these workers. Um, what does that term mean? Super exploitation is a term that actually has been popularized by a Brazilian uh, political economist, Rui Mauro Marini. And uh, the term, I think, identifies the main forms of exploitation of some workers that are not mainly based on technological uh, improvements, but, for example, by lengthening the working day, like uh, making people work for 10, 12, 14, uh, 16 hours a day, or making tasks more intense, so forcing people to work more intensely, reducing breaks, and so on, and also paying people less than what people actually need to survive or to pay for the costs for their families and and so on. Okay, so what does that mean for the workers once they leave the fields? What what kind of life do these super exploited workers have? One characteristic of uh, the lives of these workers is that independently of the uh, type of work, because they can work also in kind of very mechanized and uh, highly productive uh, cultivations, but still they can be super exploited. So for example, they can uh, work for very long hours, like uh, eight, 12 hours a day. And then in other periods when they are not needed for the production, they can work very short hours, very intermittently. And they don't uh, enjoy contractual and social rights and very often are paid much below the levels uh, established by national collective agreements. And another common form of payment uh, that is not legal is uh, the fixed day wage, which basically allows employers to pay the same amount of money, but at the same time increase the amount of uh, work during the day or to pay workers by piecework, which means, for example, workers receive three, four hours, four euros for picking 400 kilos of uh, tomatoes, for example. And therefore, they intensify the work in order to increase the amount of uh, the amount of uh, tomatoes that uh, that they pick and, and therefore increase their uh, pay. And in terms, so the the kind of conditions of work are very exploitative and uh, very often the gang masters themselves uh, deduct a part of their pay in order to pay for transport and housing. And uh, in terms of um, housing conditions, also the uh, housing conditions are pretty poor because workers are quite segregated. So sometimes they live in houses, but sometimes they can live in uh, 
uh, near the fields in kind of handmade shelters or uh, ghettos, what have been defined as ghettos. And um, some reports and some uh, surveys conducted by associations like Doctor Without Borders or other groups have shown that these uh, both the housing conditions, the poor housing conditions and the poor working conditions cause, so are quite unhealthy for immigrant workers. And because of the poor health and the hygiene and also the environmental factors like uh, being in contact with the pesticides and, and so on can really be quite damaging for the health and safety of these of these workers. You talked earlier about the 1980s as this kind of transformative moment. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of not just the Italian state, but also the EU, and maybe there's other institutions too, like the World Bank or IMF. What role they play in the shift in the Italian economy, the shift in the agricultural sector, this what you call the supermarketization of the sector? I think uh, when when we we look at the role of these organizations, mm-hmm. we need to bear in mind that uh, these organizations have uh, pushed for a process of uh, liberalization of uh, Italian agriculture that has reinforced the role of uh, multinational corporations in the agricultural sector, both Italian and international multinational corporations. So what has happened uh, since the, uh, the 80s is that the role of these corporations has increased and they have been much more powerful in their attempts to dictate the cost of uh, production. And therefore, by doing this, have basically pushed down the uh, labor conditions in the sector. Like, for example, uh, some years ago, there was a farmers organization in Italy that announced that uh, multinational corporations like Coca-Cola, for example, impose production costs of uh, 0.07 uh, euros per kilo of oranges. Mm. And these costs were way below the actual prices of production of the oranges. And therefore, by doing this, the farmers who wish to sell their oranges to Coca-Cola, for example, are incentivized to push down the conditions of the workers. I see. So why did the Italian state, I mean, I guess there's two questions. Um, They're big. But one, why did the Italian state decide to go along with this, this transition, this liberalization of the agricultural sector? And two, What's the relationship between the Italian state today and the migrant workers? I think that when we think about the process of globalization of production, uh, the state has actually played quite a central role in this, in facilitating this process of accumulation. And so I, uh, what I would answer is that the, the state has played a key role in creating the conditions for a kind of profitable accumulation in the agricultural sector. And some of the corporations uh, that profit from these conditions are also Italian. So it's not just um, a question of kind of Italian versus um, foreign corporations. 
The other thing about the um, the role of the state vis-a-vis the immigrant workers is that, yeah, so there, there is quite a lot of research that has shown how the state can actually create the conditions of super exploitation that are functional to the process of accumulation by, for example, introducing uh, laws and reforms that precarize labor relations by introducing pro-business policies and also by uh, limiting workers' mobilities by implemented anti-immigrant legislation that makes the conditions of immigrant workers more vulnerable. What I think we are trying to do, Rosanna, Chilo and I, in the article that we published on Geoforum, was to look at the role of the Italian state in a kind of uh, more global dimension and see how Italian imperialism specifically has played a key role in creating the conditions of increasing immigration in Italy. For example, while we look more specifically at the Libyan war since 2011, but in general, the role of um, Western uh, European and Italian imperialism more specifically has been uh, to create a reserve army of labor, and at the same time, basically through these uh, anti-immigration reforms, making the conditions of those who manage to get to Italy much more precarious, much more vulnerable. And so by doing this, basically, they have created a pool of workers who are super exploitable in the countryside, mainly immigrant workers who today, I think, represent more than half of the um, agricultural workforce. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. So I guess maybe the first thing is probably a lot of listeners will wonder, you know, what you mean by Italian imperialism. We're not talking about the 1920s and 30s here. You're talking about Italian imperialism today. So what does that look like? Well, I think um, what does Italian imperialism today uh, look like? I think um, what we try to do here is to look at the role that Italy played in uh, the 2011 NATO aggression against Libya, more specifically. Libya is an interesting example because, of course, it's a historical colony of, of Italy. Uh, it, uh, it was, uh, yes, so it was an Italian colony. And also it had quite a kind of um, privileged relationship with uh, Italy under, under Gaddafi. And um, what um, we discuss is how ex- by exploiting Gaddafi's brutal repression of the 2011 uprisings in uh, Libya, the Italian state has participated in uh, the NATO war against uh, Libya in 2011. And uh, this war was basically aimed at um, uh, facilitating the process of extraction of Libyan resources on the part of uh, Italian and Western multinational corporations. And we look in particular at the role of uh, ANI, which is the the main Italian oil and gas corporation. And what we find out is that um, these kind of companies have played quite an important role uh, both before and after 2011. 
And after 2011, when they couldn't rely on Gaddafi and uh, his his uh, regime to continue their operations uh, in the country, they have increasingly relied on a series of uh, militias in order to guarantee the extraction of oil and gas uh, from, from the country. But the thing is, and this is less discussed, is that the same militias that uh, they rely upon are also involved in the traffic of uh, human beings, of weapons, of uh, oil, and so on uh, from from the country. So it's a basically a series of criminal cartels that uh, by and large control uh, the uh, Libyan economy, especially in, uh, in the west of, of the country. And so while under Gaddafi, there was some level of kind of um, compromise and also Gaddafi had been able to use its kind of bargaining position on a series of issues to get something back, right? In the sense, for example, they signed a treatment of friendship in 2008, Italy and Libya, in which kind of Italy kind of apologized for its colonial crimes in in the country and committed itself to a series of investments and also infrastructural investments in the country and to the payment of reparations to basically uh, apologize for the crimes of uh, Italian colonialism. What happened after the 2011 invasion? No, sorry, I'm a bit confused with Iraq. (laughs) Sorry, it wasn't an invasion. What happened after the 2011 NATO war, and in particular after the civil war that followed, is that companies like ANI that were actually in charge of paying these reparations used the civil war to stop paying the reparations to the Libyan people. Wow. What we uh, show is that the model of um, accumulation that developed was much more uh, rapacious, right? So they extract more without the forms of kind of uh, repayments or investments that uh, Gaddafi had been able to ensure before. And then just to be clear, they're paying these criminal cartels the money to extract the oil now. Yeah. And not just uh, Italy, but um, the situation is that uh, basically the entire European Union relies on these cartels in order to implement its policies in um, in Libya. And uh, of course, also from Libya in, in the rest of Africa. So it's not just uh, Italy, but um, it's the entire European Union that uh, with all the memorandum of understandings, all the kind of uh, investments in, in Libya and, um, and so on, are actually uh, supporting these, uh, these militias. And then again, just to be clear, it's not just support for the militias so that the militias can send oil, it's also to use these militias to control the flow of people who come into Europe. Is that right? I think it's it's kind of a um, slightly clump, complex process because what happened is on the one side, the kind of predatory capitalism that uh, was uh, um, forced upon the country after 2011 
has created uh, and generalized conditions of uh, poverty and uh, insecurity uh, that pushed um, not only immigrant workers, we need to remember Libya was one of the main countries of immigration in Africa with more than 2 million and 500,000 immigrants working in, in Libya, but also increasingly Libyans themselves uh, are pushed uh, out of the country because of the terrible conditions and the kind of uh, uh, declining living standards and uh, social security. And, and so on the one side, there has been this push caused by the 2011 intervention. And on the other side, what we witnessed is that these cartels that have been empowered by Italy, the European Union, and, and so on, also play a key role in the traffic of, uh, of people in the Mediterranean. And what has happened has been also kind of concentration of uh, smuggling activities that have turned increasingly into trafficking because very often people were also forced basically to embark on boats to, to reach the other side. So it, it's become a much more violent process. And so the same people who control the basically migratory movements are also in charge of the enforcement of restricting uh, restrictive migratory policies from the European Union. Yeah, you describe this scene where there are protests in Italy, migrant workers are protesting the conditions, the unfree conditions of work in Italy. And then you also say at the same time, I think this is 2018, you have some Eritreans who escaped these detention camps in Libya also protesting. So I, I guess the question is, just so, just so I can be clear, the Italian state is paying the Libyan militias basically to not allow people to enter Italy, but the Italian state also wants some people to be able to enter Italy so that they can have a super exploited workforce. Is that more or less your argument? Yes. The thing is, on the one side, they are paying the people who are also responsible for basically degrading the conditions in Libya and so causing um, push factors, uh, we could call. Mm -hmm. At the okay. same time, the thing is that uh, they are paying these people not just to basically keep people away from Italy, right? Because what I think is the most... Um, shocking um, thing that uh, I, I don't know for me from this story is that um, when I talk to immigrants uh, coming from, from Libya, uh, what they told me is, and what I also found out by listening to testimonies online and, and so on, because there are people who are collecting these testimonies and sharing them, is that immigrants, when they are detained, when they are um, put in, in these uh, concentration camps in, in Libya, they are detained indefinitely, right? And the people who detain them either torture them or sell them as, uh, yes, we could call them slaves, like uh, they're, they're basically forced to work in order to pay for their release. And this is indefinite because there isn't any law that says, well, at a certain point you will be released. And the people who are in detention, 
actually uh, some of them, especially those who come from Western Africa and migrated mainly for economic reasons, would like to go back to their countries of origin. They basically asked uh, and they um, to, to be allowed to go back uh, somehow through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and um, repatriation uh, programs and, and so on. But uh, what, what comes out is that um, it's not in the interest of the forces that control the West Libyan economy to allow those people to go back to their countries of origin. There are some testimonies of people who say, well, we ask them to go back. We don't want to go to Europe. We want to go back to our country, but they are keeping us here because the entire Libyan economy now uh, basically works on the basis of the business of detention, of unfree labor, of um, um, and, and so on, of the kind of these, these forms of exploitation of um, immigrant workers. And I don't know if you followed, but more recently, it wasn't really very much discussed, but um, after a raid in, um, in the west of Tripoli at the beginning of October, Thousands and thousands of immigrants, some of them African immigrants, some of them were even able to escape detention centers. And they basically organized an occupation in front of the office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, asking them, we want to go anywhere. Please send us anywhere. We don't want to stay in Libya. Libya is, a, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, is not a safe country. Uh, for us, and they asked to be um, moved to whatever country, also in Africa, but not Libya. And uh, what happened is that uh, the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees uh, refused to uh, provide help to them. And they actually collaborated with the uh, Libyan uh, government. And after a series of months, this occupation was repressed and people were forced back into detention and, and so on. So the thing is why, if the goal of uh, European immigration policies is to keep people away, so why when these same people are asking you to be allowed to go back to their countries of origin, you don't try to facilitate this, mm -hmm. but you prefer to invest millions and millions of euros into a system of detention and the militarization of the borders that we all know leads to, uh, well, the deaths, the kind of killings of uh, thousands of people in the Mediterranean, but not just that. It's a, it's a system based on abuse, based on torture, based on human rights abuses, rapes, religious discrimination, and so on and so forth. So why is the European Union doing that in, instead of supporting the repatriation of the people who are asking to just be moved to whatever safe country? Yeah, right. And, that, and that's my question for you. So why? Why? So on the one side, this is functional. And I think um, even the refugees and the immigrants themselves say, well, what we need to bear in mind is that uh, this system, in the end, creates a super exploitable workforce that can be exploited both in Libya, where since 2017, basically um, forced labor 
has spread throughout the entire Libyan economy. So not just agriculture, but um, all sectors in the Libyan economy, because employers can, uh, yeah, <laughs> can also not pay people with total impunity. And on the other side, this creates also reserves of workers that can be exploited also in Italy or in the rest of Europe, and very often have faced uh, such uh, violence uh, throughout the journey and in Libya uh, that uh, they feel that even very exploitative uh, conditions, like the ones we described at the beginning of this uh, chat, even those conditions seem to be an improvement when compared with what they left behind. I see. So you're painting a picture of a, of a, of a predatory and I would say almost criminal state. And I don't mean just the Italian state, but I mean every state that's involved in this. It, it's a really different picture than, than what we learn in, you know, in high school where you know, the state is there to protect, to protect people, basically. But the way that you're describing it, it's that the state, and not only the state, but that the, the European Union too, the institutions of the European Union, and then also the IMF and the World Bank, because they helped to push the liberalization of, of agriculture, they're also complicit in this too. And they're really looking out for, well, it sounds just like, it sounds like they're looking out for the corporations here. Is that, is that an accurate description of what you're saying? Yes, definitely. Okay. I guess I want to ask you, what's your sense of the way that it, Italians see these these people, these people who are working in agriculture, is there lots of sympathy for their situation? And then how has immigration shaped the, the, the political discourse in Italy in recent years? Well, I think that um, I think there has been, and I think that um, sympathy and support for immigrant workers has been an important factor in the growth of the anti-racist movement in Italy since um, the 1980s, uh, the late 1980s, when uh, there were the first protests after a South African uh, refugee was killed. And this kind of solidarity that emerged led to the growth of the anti-racist movement in, in the country. And what we witnessed in recent years has been the growth of a self-organized and that's to a certain extent, and um, movement of immigrant workers who have um, really protested the kind of conditions that they find in, in the sector. Because um, what I, I kind of interviewing immigrants uh, who came from Libya, and what came out is that on the one side, yes, Libya can be a kind of disciplining factor, but on the other side can also be a comparison and people can say well look i went through hell but at the same time now i'm in a new situation where i have rights right i have formal rights like associational rights and and so on and so forth and so it can be actually push people to fight for better conditions and so what we see uh, we have seen in italy especially since 2006 is um, is the growth of um, 
movement of agricultural workers, African workers, who have fought for um, against uh, state racism, against also popular racism, and have fought for, for better working conditions. And in doing this, they have found uh, the, the kind of support of trade unions and anti-racist associations. And they were also able to create the first independent organization of uh, African workers who organized also a national strike of immigrants, evoking the strikes that had taken place in uh, the United States and France around the theme of a day without immigrants, for example. And hundreds of thousands of people mobilized all over the country. And they have been able, especially since 2011, also to um, achieve improvements in terms of legislation which can be seen also a way, as a way of diverting this kind of um, potential of the struggle. But at the same time, there has been the implementation of a series of laws against um, severe exploitation and the gang master system that um, were basically pushed through or, or also because of these, of these mobilizations. And what we saw more recently, uh, and this is something else I worked on, is that we had on the one side, especially since 2007, 2008, after the global economic crisis, we have the emergence of a movement of immigrant workers, in particular in the logistics sector. So the kind of, um, you know, Amazon, even though Amazon has been that, um, has been involved later, but all the workers working in warehouses and uh, and and so on, mainly again super exploited immigrants who have actually led struggles in logistics and have actually been able to use their power to disrupt uh, the the sector and achieve improvements. And at the same time, uh, this kind of movement has started to converge with the movement of immigrant workers in agriculture. So there has been this convergence, and I think this convergence has been one of the targets of the anti-immigrant legislation under the far-right government of Salvini. But at the same time, I think um, immigration in Italy has played a key political role. And unfortunately, this has meant that um, anti-immigrant sentiments and anti-immigrant discourses that kind of overlook these kind of systemic processes that uh, we're trying to trace and understand and instead saying, well, it's immigrants' fault if um, labor conditions are deteriorating, right? This is because, of course, they accept uh, worse conditions and so on. So this kind of anti-immigrant discourse, I think, has played quite an important role in dividing uh, workers. And at the same time, what we have also seen is that um, the main unions have failed to organize a proper uh, resistance against uh, precarization, worsening conditions, and so on, and um, have been integrated more in kind of institutional politics. They haven't really been able to link up with these uh, movements led by immigrant workers. And I think this is quite uh, negative in the sense that there isn't a real um, attempt to unify different kinds of struggles. 
and and this leaves uh, the space for kind of um, racist arguments to divide workers. I don't know if it's clear what I'm yeah. saying. No, it's very clear. And when you're speaking, what it's making me think is, you, know, you you talk a lot about Marx in your work and what Marx what Marx can teach us. And I'm wondering if the unions in Italy have moved so far away from structural explanations because Marxism is largely out of fashion. One, I don't know if that's true, but maybe it is. And you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. And two, I'm wondering if the organizing that's happening outside of migrant labor, immigrant labor, whether that's explicitly anti-capitalist or, 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 or Marxist. Yeah, I think some of these unions um, are kind of anti-capitalist and uh, so they they kind of um, uh, are trying to develop a kind of anti-capitalist uh, resistance and maybe this has inspired a part part of this of this movement. What I would say something that really uh, struck me while I was doing this research because I was interviewing um, workers in a trade union um, site, right? So I was in a in a building that is owned by the union, and I was asking workers, um, so refugee, so asylum seekers mainly, uh, about their working conditions and and so on, and uh, some people told me, look, um. I don't care, you know, I don't have a family back in Mali where this person came from. So even if I'm paid um, one euro per, per hour or I'm not paid, I don't really care because I'm, I'm not in Libya anymore. And I have shelter, I have housing here as an asylum seeker. And so that's, uh, that's enough for me, right? And this, like, this wasn't something that the unions had really dealt with so they, so when we interviewed trade unionists, what they told us that is that they never talk about Libya with uh, asylum seekers or workers, and the only people who talk about Libya are reporters and and so on who uh, interview uh, African immigrants. And so what I thought is like, how paradoxical is I'm in a trade union building, but the unions are not dealing with this, right? And they don't mm -hmm. care about what happened in Libya, but at the same time, then you have workers who are ready to work for free <laughs> because this is not Libya. And then you have the main unions like Cigiale, for example, who organizes these concerts for the 1st of May in Rome with the money of multinational corporations like ANI, <laughs> right? Wow. So where, where is the workers' movement going to be? So how can we organize effectively if we don't really deal with these kind of issues anymore? But the sad thing is that somehow um, 10 years ago, at the height of the anti-war movement and so on, these same unions were organizing the anti-war movement. They, they were trying to find the links between what happens here and what happened in the former Republic of Yugoslavia or in, um, in Iraq and, and so on. And so what I hope is that, yes, maybe these more radical unions, especially now that uh, we face a situation in which uh, uh, using COVID and, and so on, this process of precarization and also impoverishment is um, deepening. 
I hope that maybe these radical unions will um, force the rest of the labor movement to find this kind of radical approach again. I hope you enjoyed the show today. This is a small request for a small donation. If you are a regular listener and were thinking about donating, now is the time to do it. Even a dollar or two a month would be wonderful. We are trying to hire an editor. We are a long way from our goal, but um, I think with with some donations this month, we, we might get there. So consider it. You can go to the website, which is www.acorrectionpodcast.com. Your donation button there. If you live in the United States, it's a tax-deductible donation, which is uh, a real benefit. In any case, please consider donating, and we will see you next week.